In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. People sometimes ask me what I think of video games. I think that, in moderation, they're a fine source of the kind of passive entertainment we all need little doses of in our lives. But for me personally, I rarely play video games because there's just too much other stuff I'd rather do instead. There is one notable exception to my ambivalence towards video games, however, a game which I played for hours with thorough enjoyment and zero regret, Red Dead Redemption 2. It's a video game that's more immersive and story-like than most others, and even gets you reflecting on the existential layers of life. Here to discuss those deeper layers of Red Dead Redemption 2 with me is Patrick Stokes, a professor of philosophy and a fellow fan of the game. We combine two of my favorite things, Red Dead Redemption 2 and the philosophy of Soren Kierkegaard in a conversation on the existential themes you can find in the game, like nostalgia, freedom, choice and consequences, and the certain uncertainty of death. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash rdr2. All right, Patrick Stokes, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you are a professor of philosophy who specializes in continental philosophy, existential philosophy, particularly the philosophy of soaring Kierkegaard. How did you make the Dane with awesome hair the subject of your <laughs> of your academic career? He he did have awesome hair. That is one thing we know. I, I think there's four drawings from life that we we have of Kierkegaard. He never sat for a photo. He didn't quite live long enough for that. But yeah, he did. He did have absolutely magnificent hair and had the good sense to die at the age of 42 before that started to go south on him. So yeah, I got into Kierkegaard actually as an undergrad, which sounds like a really pretentious thing to say, but I sort of got to university not really knowing anything about philosophy. Discovered it more or less by accident and got really taken by existentialism, particularly Jean-Paul Sartre. And that then led me to Kierkegaard, actually, sort of looking at the footnotes to Sartre, where he talks a bit about Kierkegaard. And he's just intriguingly weird. He, he's a weird philosopher in many ways because he's he's an odd sort of guy. He never actually held down a job or anything like that. He lived off his father's inheritance. He published all these books that were published under fake names, although the names weren't really meant to hide who was behind them all. They were there to sort of try and make you as a reader stop and think about, you know, well, hang on, where do I stand in relation to this? Do I really want to believe a guy with a name like Hilarious Bookbinder or, you know, John of Silence? How am I going to, you know, relate myself to these wacky sorts of pseudonymous names? And I just sort of got into him because he's he's got this really kind of existential urgency to him almost, right? When you're reading philosophy, I mean, and this is actually, and Kierkegaard knows this, is one of the attractions of philosophy is you can abstract yourself, right? You can just sort of lose yourself in pure abstract ideas and all your problems and whatever else sort of melt away. What Kierkegaard's really good at doing is calling you back to the fact that, now, hang on, you're a living, breathing, mortal human being sitting here reading this work right now. And, you know, he's not afraid to say to you, hey, is this even, is reading this book the best use of your time? Is thinking about this stuff the best use of your time? Or should you be doing something else right now? That's one of the things I think is kind of wonderful and at the same time slightly terrifying about Kierkegaard is that you can you can always hear the clock ticking in the background. Yeah, that's why I like him because he he writes, it's funny, he's sarcastic. And I've said this on another podcast. We did a podcast with uh, Jacob Howland about the present age. Oh, awesome. Yeah, oh, and, Jake's great. Yeah, and uh, we just talked, I, one of the things I say I said there is whenever I read Kierkegaard, I feel like he's grabbing me by the lapels and he's just asking me, he's like, do you really believe what you say you believe. Like that's, yeah. that's how I feel. I'm like, oh man, I don't know. Do I, do I, do I really want to will one thing? Am I willing one thing? I don't know. And uh, you feel discombobulated afterwards. Hmm. 
Yeah. And yeah, and he can be genuinely laugh out loud funny. He can be heartbreaking. Some philosophers can write and some can't, right? And and if you can't write as a philosopher, that's not necessarily the end of the world because you're not actually trying to write poetry. You're not trying to write something for fun necessarily. But, but Kierkegaard considered himself... He, fundamentally a kind of poet. He never actually, or maybe once or twice, he sort of briefly mentions himself as a philosopher, but he always says, look, fundamentally, I'm not a philosopher. I'm a kind of poet. So besides being a continental philosopher, you're also a fan of one of my all-time favorite video games. It's Red Dead Redemption 2. It's part of a series. There's Red Dead Redemption 1. Red Dead Redemption 2, it's so funny. I'm not a gamer. Like I don't play video. I'll play Fortnite with my, my kids every now and then. But when Red Dead Redemption 2 came out, like I, every night I was like, it was like I was reading a book. I'm, I'm going to go spend 30 minutes. And it's funny. I talked to other men my age, same thing. They're like, oh man, that game is amazing. I'm not a gamer, but that was awesome. Another funny story. I have a friend who's an anesthesiologist and um, he was doing work on this. He was an older gentleman, probably late sixties, early seventies. And he was there when this gentleman woke up from his, his surgery and the, the guy was like, oh man, I just had the most amazing dream. And my friend Chris was like, oh wow, tell me about it. And this old, this guy, you know, 70 year old guy just looked at him and was like, have you ever played the game Red Dead Redemption 2? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, I was on my horse. Uh, and I think it's just funny that this, this game uh, has so much impact on grown men. I'm curious, how did a continental philosopher end up being a fan of a third person shooter video game set in the American Wild West? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm in the same boat, Brett. I'm not a gamer, really. I've never had a game console at all. That was always the thing that the cool kids had that I got to occasionally go around to their house and play when I was growing up, but I never sort of managed to have one for myself. But what happened was COVID happened, and I'm based in Melbourne, Australia, where we had one of the longest lockdowns, not entirely all in one hit. It was in a, a few different chunks of lockdown, but we had really, really, I think it was 260-something days in, in lockdown. And just before the first one of those hit, I'm like, well, if this is going to happen, I'm going to go out and get a, a, a console. Went for the Xbox rather than the PlayStation. I'm still not entirely sure why. But anyway, got that set up. And, of course, you, you get like the subscription thing where you can download a set number of games for free at any given time. Not for free because you pay a subscription at any time. And to my surprise, Red Dead Redemption 2 was there and I'd heard about it. I knew it heard all these sort of, you know, really gushy reviews of how great it was. And I thought, yeah, well, yeah, I'll give it a crack. And the result, as I say, is you, you, you get, as you say, absolutely sucked into it for a very, very long period of time because there's something like 60 hours or so of gameplay depending how you actually play it. And it does, as you say, you, you sort of alluded to there, in some respects it's almost wrong to call it a game because while there are obviously game mechanics holding the whole thing together, in some respects it's more like watching a story or, or, or you know, being led through a story. You've got some control over it, but it is really, really strong narrative. And, I mean, it's beautifully, beautifully done. It is so, you know, just aesthetically beautiful. And the performances are actually really astonishing. Like, it's it's so well acted. So as soon as I started playing it, you know, it's that first scene where they're up in the mountains and characters dying. I remember, like, going, wow, this is not at all what I expected and just being completely sucked in. And it probably helped, of course. This was happening during, as I say, the start of lockdown. So it's a period where we're thinking about death. We're thinking about things like isolation. And I just finished writing a book which was about dead people online. And so I was very much kind of in that space of thinking about the, the way in which death and the past are mediated through digital spaces to us. So it was just a, a really amazing confluence of things that all happened at once. Yeah, I think you're right. It's a beautifully done game. And for me, you know, you do have the game stuff, the mashing buttons and shooting people. But for me, I don't know if this is the same for you, but when I've talked to other people, it's been the same. That, you know, mash buttons to and kill people, that was just to move the story along so I could see the cutscenes and like follow these yeah. characters. So that's how I played it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you can play other things that are as well sort of, you know, put together. I play a bit of Sniper Elite sometimes, which again, really beautiful, well done, but couldn't really care less about the story, particularly to the extent that it even exists. Whereas this is really narratively well made, well constructed and just, yeah, incredibly engaging and emotionally engaging. I had, you know, my next door neighbor played it through and then he, you know, I was like, I'm not going to spoil anything for you. I'm not going to spoil anything. And then every so often I just get messages from him going, oh my God, oh my God, this thing has happened. And he's just like so uh, emotionally thrown around by it. And I think that's a really common reaction to it. It's the only video game that's made me cry. 
Yeah, same. I think, yeah, it, it's yeah. just, it is really quite just deeply moving. Okay, so we're going to talk about this. because What I love about this, that you're a philosopher and you love Red Dead Redemption 2, is that when I was playing this game, I was thinking, man, there's so many philosophical themes in this thing. Why? There's got to be some philosopher or some philosophy students who, who's written about this. And I, I Googled it and I found you. So I want to talk about those philosophical themes. So it's very existential, which I think is, a, I think maybe one of the other reasons why it's called to you. So for those who haven't played the game or it's been a while since you played it, let's do spoiler alerts. We're going to be talking about, I think, the part of the story here. So if you haven't played the game, you want to, you should probably stop listening and go play the game. But big picture, like what's the plot of, of Red Dead Redemption 2? Sure. So it's a prequel to the earlier game, Red Dead Redemption, which I still haven't played, actually. I have played Red Dead Revolver, which is the really old one, but yeah. I haven't actually played the the other one. But it's a, a prequel to that, and it's set in 1899. So you've got the Vanderlind gang built around the very charismatic figure of Dutch Vanderlind, who have all been sort of held around him for a very long period of time. You play as the character Arthur Morgan, who, for most of the game, in the epilogue, you're playing as John Marston. But you play as Arthur Morgan, who has been part of the gang since he was a child or was more a very young adolescent. And so he's kind of, this has been his whole life. And you've got this gang who are all very disparate people. They all come from very different backgrounds, different sort of, you know, cultural and linguistic backgrounds and, and so on, but who have been held together by this sort of gang ethos for a very, very long time. And there's this layering in the whole thing about lost time is probably the best way I would put it, that it's a gang of people in 1899, so they're, they're living really on the cusp of the death of the Old West, right? Their whole way of life is receding from them and they feel out of time. They feel out of joint with the world. The world just doesn't want them anymore. There's no place for their sort of lifestyle anymore in the world. And so they're already kind of, you know, yearning for a past that's already kind of behind them and the past is really present in the game. But, of course, we're playing this game from the 21st century. And so we're kind of looking at them as these characters who are already themselves long in the past. Of course, they're also fictional. And that's something the game does just phenomenally well in so many ways. Like, I don't know if you noticed how many photos there are in the game. Oh, lots of photos. When you start yeah. the game up, it's just like these um, Derek types or 10 photos like developing. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and they've all got dates and, and, and places on them, right? So places that never really existed. But, you know, they're these images that are already, if you like, records of the past in the game world. And that's, I think, this really profound... And, and everyone in the game school have got photos of, of deceased loved ones or people are always stopping to take photos. You can go and get your photo taken in a, like a photographer's studio. You can... There's one where you actually... One side quest where you have to go out and photograph... Kill and photograph a whole bunch of gunslingers. Or sometimes they're alive, I think. But So there's this kind of obsession almost in the game with the way in which the past is is present and visibly present, you know, and there's always these ways in which the past is constantly in interfering and interrupting in, in the, the present in this game. There's this whole thing about just, yeah, layered time is, is probably the best way I can put it that is incredibly smart and incredibly engaging and at its best, yeah, really moving. And I want to talk more about that, flesh that out. But before I do, let's talk about this. So we had the gang's leader, Dutch Vanderland. He's very bombastic. He's larger than life. And he, he's a philosopher. From the get-go, he's always talking to this group of you know outlaws, but he calls them their family. It's like these are these people he's taking care of. He's kind of expounding philosophically to them. How would you describe Dutch Vanderland's philosophy? Yeah, it's interesting because it, it's in some ways, kind of pseudo-philosophy almost, right? So he has a yeah. whole bunch of big ideas, Dutch, and they hold together a, a particular kind of vision that he's got. He's, I would also say, too, he's a brilliantly, brilliantly rendered character. Benjamin Byron Davis, who plays him, just has done an absolutely iconic job with, with the acting and, and the, the embodying that figure. And what's captivating about the character in some ways is that He's the central figure of the group. He's got this real kind of charisma to him, but he also represents a kind of soteriology, right? What I mean, which is a, a fancy word for saying salvation, right? He's, he's basically always promising them that, you know, he has a plan. And that's the thing he says over and over again is, I have a plan. And like, everyone's got to go along with the plan, keep the faith, keep doing what we're doing. This is going to be the one more big job. And after a while, this melds into the idea that the whole gang 
having, if you like, almost exhausted their time in their own world, will escape to Tahiti, right? And Tahiti becomes the afterlife. Tahiti becomes this paradisical state of salvation that the gang will get to. And you just need to keep faith and do this one bit last job and we'll get there. And that's incredibly powerful. And it's, it's really effective at organising people. He's almost a cult leader in some ways. But then, of course, what ends up happening is there's something incredibly self-serving about his whole attitude to all this stuff. And over time, his actions start to become more and more disconnected from the kind of moral identity and moral purpose that he's always sort of projected for the gang. So he starts doing things that the gang wouldn't necessarily do, like killing civilians and killing people out of revenge or in in particularly sort of cruel ways. And so over time, Arthur comes to sort of question Dutch's character and also starts to question his judgment because he keeps making worse and worse decisions. And then after a while, he starts doing things that are actively almost betraying certain members of the gang, at which point it becomes clear that fundamentally Dutch is not out to lead his flock into salvation. He's really just out for himself. I think that's a great way to describe it. It's a pseudo-philosophy. Like he talks philosophically, but when you look at it, there's really nothing there. Yeah, which is is kind of easy enough to do. And if you're good at doing it, you can make a pretty decent living out of it. But, you know, it, it's you know, he, he's, he's got that classic sort of air of the pseudo-intellectual who maybe knows a few things. He's maybe read a few things here and there. He's well-read, but his ideas don't necessarily have what Kierkegaard, just to bring it back to Kierkegaard, would call a life view. Uh, I think the Danish is Lils on school, sir. That is a, a, an integrated view of himself that holds the whole thing together. And that's why over time, as things change, his actions start to become inconsistent. His judgment starts to go off because he doesn't have that life view that holds the whole thing together in a stable way over time. We'll go back to this idea of them trying to get back to this Edenic state. Like that's a common theme when they're when you're traveling to different missions. The characters talk to each other, and they just constantly talking about, "Well, we just got to get back to the way things were." Mm-hmm. And it made me kind of think of Kierkegaard. I don't know if maybe you talked about any of this because he's like a Christian philosopher. Did Kierkegaard ever talk about our longing for you know returning to Eden? Did that was ever a theme he ever talked about? Yeah, there's a couple of passing references where he says there's always this desire to go back to a kind of primordial garden, if you like. He does mention that, but there's also some really interesting stuff in Kierkegaard about the idea of returning to a kind of a second immediacy or a second childhood, hmm. going back to the past in a way. But he says that's not the same thing as just, you know, well, going back to a, a second childhood is not the same thing as having never grown up, right? So you can never really go back to a state of, what he calls immediacy, before you've started to think things through, before you've started to think critically. You can never really go back to that. But you can maybe get to a stage beyond where you are now where what was there in the past or what was best of the past is somehow taken up into that. And that does seem like maybe that's where the game is almost directing you, is, you know, you you can't go back to the way things were. And, And we as the viewer and as the player know that you can't go back to that past. We know that for two reasons. One, because we're sitting here in the 21st century and we know that the old West doesn't come back. And secondly, because we know what happens in Red Dead Redemption, the original game, we know what happens 11 years later. So that's a really powerful thing. Again, a little bit spoilery, but we know which of the characters we're looking at is dead. Right. right? We know which ones have actually died in the intervening years So, and which ones haven't too. So there's a sense in which... The idea that these characters have that they can get back to the past, they can get back to a great way that things used to be, we know that that's not going to happen. We know that that's a fool's errand. And so the question then is, well, what kind of redemption, what kind of salvation is available to these characters? Where can they go that won't be the way things were, but that will somehow complete that story for them in a satisfying way? Well, let's talk about one of those characters who I think figures it out. And that's Arthur Morgan. He's the protagonist. He's the character that you play. And I'm going to say he's one of my all-time favorite fictional characters. I'm talking including books, movies. He's up there with Augustus McRae from Lonesome Dove as one of my favorite characters. I think part of it, Roger Clark, the actor who portrayed mm-hmm. Arthur, just did a really great job. The acting was, was top-notch. What would you say about so Dutch Vanderland had this kind of pseudo philosophy about this. Like we're going to get to this golden place where things were back to way, the way they were, and it's amazing. How would you describe Arthur Morgan's philosophy? Well, Arthur, I think, is an interesting character because in some ways he does have a, a sort of a life view. He does have a good sense of himself, but it becomes more and more kind of more and more intention with the world around him and with the people around him. 
but he also, in some interesting respects, lacks certain kinds of insight. You know, there he there's a really interesting moment there, a really pivotal moment, which we might even talk about shortly, but there's there's this moment where one character sort of says to him, you don't really know yourself because oh, yeah. you're actually happiest when you're helping people. You're happiest when you're actually doing these good things. You think of yourself as this nasty, hardened criminal, and he has done horrendous things, but that's not actually who you really kind of are. Now, in existentialism, of course, and with the caveat that, there's no real kind of like, you know, there's no set of principles you have to sign up to to be an existentialist. There's no one good definition of what existentialism is. Existentialists tend to be very suspicious of the idea that you have a true self or a real self underneath because fundamentally what you are is what you do, right? And so in that sense, Arthur's right that the the people he's killed and the things he's stolen, that's him. But the other things he does too, the ways in which he helps people, the ways in which he makes good, you know, moral choices a lot of the time, the way in which he goes back to save people at great risk to himself, those two are who he is and those two feed into him. And this is why it's so interesting, of course, that you have an honour system in the game where basically the decisions you make will not only affect your kind of honour status but they'll also affect what happens in the game up to and including the way in which the character ends. So that's actually quite a a really, from a philosophy perspective, it's a really interesting mechanic. It's it's a really kind of cool thing that these irreversible decisions happen based upon the sort of moral choices you make in the moment. Yeah, I want to flesh out the honor system. I think that's a really interesting dynamic of the game. But going back to Arthur's philosophy and his worldview, I think it's interesting throughout the story when people ask him like straight like, what do you believe? He's like, I don't believe in anything or I don't know what I believe in. And I think that, yeah, you're talking about that nun he was having that conversation with the nun and, you know, he basically said, uh, I don't know who I am or something. And she said, well, yeah, that's the problem. You don't know who you are. And it reminded me of Kierkegaard, right? Like the self is the self relating to the self. And like, I think Arthur wasn't really relating to himself completely. Yeah. And I mean, that's, um, she echoes in some ways what the character Judge William says in, in Kierkegaard's book, Either Or, who says to his young aesthetic friend, you know, you're not even really a person. You're just a bunch of stuff that happens. That's kind of roughly what he says, you know, because you don't have that organizing principle that holds you together. I think uh, that Arthur actually does. I think Arthur does have a kind of a, a life view. He does have a, an understanding of himself. It's just that it's not always clear to himself. There's an element there of almost self-deception. There's an element of what Sartre would call bad faith, not bad faith in the sense of being deceptive, but just in the sense of identifying with one aspect of yourself. I'm a member of Dutch Vandalin's gang. I do all these things. And thereby denying the other aspects of yourself. I help people, I do all these other things, and I have the capacity to do that. And yeah, that scene with the nun is so kind of pivotal. And not only pivotal, it's so well acted. It's just yeah. so beautifully done. And it, it, in some respects, is almost the, you know, the sort of emotional turning point of the game. We'll talk more about it because we got to we got to lead up to it because there's 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 a the reason why it's so poignant is because something happens to Arthur that makes it all the more poignant. But yeah, but I think the reason I think a lot of people like Arthur Morgan is that they can relate to him so much. I mean, I think a lot of us think, well, look at my life, look at the things I've done, they're terrible. But then we don't look at the good we've done, and for some reason, I don't know, for we have a blind spot for the good things we do. We just focus on all the bad stuff. Yeah, sure. There's a kind of perfectionism that can happen there, right? Where we end up just so kind of focused on, you know, wanting to do things perfectly or, you know, wanting people to see us in a certain kind of way that we ignore all the things that probably do count in our favor already. There's a story actually that one night Ludwig Wittgenstein, the philosopher Wittgenstein, basically called his friend over and just sat down and started reciting a list of all the bad things he'd done and all his faults. And she said to him, good God, Ludwig, what, do you want to be perfect? And he looked at her completely nonplussed and said, well, of course I do, don't you? (laughs) <laughs> and I thought that was kind of, yeah, that's an interesting sort of way of looking at it, that, you know, perfection is not possible for humans. And yet that is somehow built into our kind of expectation of the world that we will be perfect. We will get everything we want. And if anything is suboptimal, that's a problem that needs to be fixed. So you mentioned uh, choice plays a big role in Red Dead Redemption 2. Tell us about that. Like what, how does choice play in the game mechanics and in the, in pushing the story forward? Yeah, so you can basically do a whole bunch of absolutely horrendous things if you want to, right? If you want to, you can just run around shooting people, cheating people, 
you can continue to extort people. There's, there's a few missions there where you're acting as a debt collector. You can, if you want, let some people off or you can absolutely force them to pay you or you can beat people up. You can do all these things. But what happens over time is that you start to get higher or lower honour depending on the way in which you've acted and the sort of choices you've made. And also certain kind of story things branch off in different ways as a result. And over time, the sort of interactions you have with other people are partly determined by your honour quotient. Now, some of that is actually about perception, I think. So, you know, basically the idea is that, well, if you've built up a bad reputation, people are going to treat you differently than if you built up a good reputation. But it's also about this almost, again, soteriological idea that if you're a good person, you'll go to one kind of ending. And if you're a bad person, you'll go to another kind of ending. And I don't want to spoil the ending just yet because I know we're going to come to that in a moment. But how the story ends for Arthur Morgan will depend upon what sort of choices you've made up to that moment, which, again, is a really interesting thing. Can I ask, did you get the good ending or the bad ending when you played it? The good ending. And I've played it twice. Yeah, it was interesting. This is kind of interesting. Maybe it says something about me. So the first time I played, I just did good, right? It's like, that's just my natural inclination. Like, I'm going to be the good guy. But the second time when I was prepping for this episode, I thought, maybe I'll play it bad. But then when that first choice came, when it was like, do you, you kill this guy or do you let him go? I couldn't do it. I couldn't kill the guy. Yeah. And I had to let him yeah. go. And I was like, I'm not an Ubermensch is <laughs> what my, my conclusion I think was. I saw an interview with Benjamin Byron Davis, who plays Dutch, and he said he can't black hat it. He just can't make himself do it. He's just like, no, I've got to play the, the good version. So I didn't even know actually after, until I'd finished afterwards that there was actually a bad ending you can get as a result of, of making unpleasant decisions. But yeah, I just can't bring myself to do it, which, which says something about you know, the power of immersion in games, the way in which you are actually kind of immersed in this world, you know, that, or at least, and particularly in some kind of games, right, you, you, you get sucked in in a way where um, very often in games you end up doing absolutely horrendous things because the game mechanics force you to or they, you know, reward you for doing so. And we tell ourselves, oh, yeah, well, that's okay. It's just a game. It doesn't really sort of matter. But then when you find yourself with genuine choices like this, you do actually get a conscience kick in and you do actually, you know, choose the good over the bad, which is is really kind of intriguing. No, I think it's, whenever I play Red Dead Redemption 2 or even any, like, like another immersive video game is, you know, Grand Theft Auto, which Rockstar Games made both of these games. I played Grand Theft Auto. I could never get into it because basically you're just doing horrendous things all the time. Mm, yeah. With Red Dead Redemption 2, yeah, like the choice means like, I'm okay, there's some instances where you have to like kill people that you probably don't want to. That's kind of an interesting thing. That's part of the Arthur Morgan's story development. There's lots of choices and you have the option to do the good thing. But there's certain parts of the game where because of the people he's around, particularly this guy named Micah, who's just a terrible, terrible person, Arthur has to do bad stuff. And that made me think about the role of friendship and friends and the influence they have on you. Sometimes, you know, like I think Aristotle would have something to say about this. Like, yeah, if you you walk around with a bunch of outlaws who are you know doing terrible things, like you might end up making yourself do terrible things. Yeah, I mean, for Aristotle, that's kind of the the core of friendship is you know that or the highest level of friendship is not there just entertaining each other, but is actually trying to make each other better sort of people. And yeah, in that sense, you could say some of the people that that Arthur's around are not good for him in that respect or are not his friends in that respect. Mind you, I don't think Micah's ever really his friend. No. You know, Micah's yeah, always not. kind of yeah. unpleasant sort of character. Played by the same guy. I actually not long ago played L.A. Noir, which is like about 11, 12 years old now, that game. That's another but, great um, game. Great game. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, but the same guy. Micah's the same guy who plays the dodgy psychiatrist in that one. Oh, man. But yeah, almost unrecognizable. But it's interesting, yeah, that you get these kind of moral choices that you're thrown into. And there there are, as you say, points in the game where you have to kill people that you think, did I really have to kill that guy? He's not, you know, if I'm stabbing an unsuspecting stable hand. Yeah, right. Um, That's... You, you know, you feel kind of like, oh, gee, I don't know. But it's an interesting thing because it does actually throw you out of the straightforward kind of, yay, I'm doing this, that games normally require you to have, which is really interesting. Because, I mean, the thing with game mechanics and the way in which they force you to do things that if you did them in real life would be horrendous is that in some respects games are actually kind of like porn in that they invite you to endorse what's going on on screen right insofar as you're meant to enjoy it you're meant to be sort of endorsing what's going on 
Games like this can make you sort of go, oh, yeah, I have to do this thing for the mechanics, but I really don't want to. And that tension's really interesting to me, the idea that there's this tension between what I have to do to win the game and what I, as an actual real flesh and blood person, would choose to do in the same sort of situation. That disconnect's really interesting. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a long-time podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss, a lot of useful information in there, talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. 
I think this idea of choice in the game is a good way. Maybe, maybe we can't get too deep with this, but it might be a good way to explain Kierkegaard's idea, the concept of anxiety. Because I think choice played a big role in that, right? Mm, yeah, for sure. And yeah, anxiety for Kierkegaard is, is similar to what anguish is for Sarch or angst is for Heidegger. This idea that there's a feeling of being free, right? And you think, oh, yeah, being free is great. It's wonderful. You know, you're unconstrained. But freedom also entails responsibility. You have to choose what to do, right? So, you know, Sarge talks about, you know, if your alarm clock goes off in the morning, you are, in fact, free to turn it off and keep sleeping or to get up and go to work. But that's not how we experience it. We experience it as, oh, there's the alarm clock. I have to get up. I have to go to work. I've got to do this stuff now. He said he calls these guardrails against anxiety, if you like. They're, They're like these things we put in place to force ourselves to believe that we have to act in a certain way because that takes the responsibility of freedom off us. You know, and, and it's an interesting thing that you know, philosophers of, ex- of the existentialist tradition are always regarded as almost philosophers of radical freedom. And a lot of the philosophers who came after them who were really critical of them said, yeah, they, they've totally overblown how free human beings are. But at the same time, those philosophers are all like, Freedom's not always nice. Freedom is actually a really unpleasant um, situation to be in. It's probably better than the alternative. And indeed, there is no alternative. According to Sartre, you, you have to be free. It's not an option not to be free. But freedom is strenuous. Freedom is constant responsibility for everything you do. And that's not always great. Well, how do you think the guys in Red Dead Redemption 2 handle it? Because they're outlaws. Conceivably, they're, they, they live outside the law. They are free. But it, I mean, maybe Dutch, maybe he wasn't. Like he maybe he kind of fooled himself thinking he was really free, but he wasn't. Yeah, I mean, you could say that in some ways their freedom ends up kind of entrapping them in an interesting sort of way because they're trying to live outside of the structures of, of polite society. But of course, the world catches up with them. And that's a big part of what's going on in this. So they rob a train belonging to an extremely wealthy business guy and he sends the Pinkertons after them. And so their whole world sort of gets encroached upon. So the idea that they have this freedom, well, they're not free from consequences. They're not free from the results of their actions. And you could say, well, that's true of everyone, right? Nobody actually has kind of freedom from consequence. Nobody has a freedom that doesn't entail bad things can happen as a result of that freedom. And the idea that you're just living free without a care in the world and without any kind of, you know, commitments or responsibilities isn't really true because the world just ensnares you in that way. Yeah, that's a common, I, you know, this, this whole story is driven. They're just constantly doing these missions to get money. They just, if we just get a little bit more money, we'll finally be able to make this Tahiti thing happen. And of course, it never works out that way. They just, the snare gets tighter and tighter around them. Yeah, and also just contingency happens, right? I mean, there's one of the things that's kind of cool about the game is even though it's got a really nice narrative structure to it, it's also very good about the fact that just totally random stuff happens that dis- that throws your plans out or whatever. So, I mean, there's there's one whole chapter where they end up... The whole landscape is fictionalized, I should say this. It's, it's set right. in the US, but it's it happens in fictional states that clearly represent real parts of the American geography, but they're not actually real states. And at one point, their ship is caught in a storm and they end up in what's clearly meant to be Cuba. They don't call it Cuba, but it's meant to be somewhere like Cuba. And so there's this idea that just radical contingency can happen. Things get in the way and you end up literally shipwrecked. Yeah, I remember when that part of that when that happened in the story, I was like, "This is so random." That, like, it was like I'm on a, I'm on a tropical island, and like what you, the missions there are just bizarre too. It just it, mm. I mean, it was fun, but it was kind of off. It was off the beaten path. Yeah, and it's interesting too the way you get thrown into this stuff in a kind of you know in media res, right? You're thrown right into the middle of it. You wake up and you're on a beach, and you're like, I have no idea what the hell's going on here. I don't know what I'm meant to do. I don't know what the sort of you know. So, of course, what you do in a game is you start looking for all things that you recognize from the earlier game mechanics. You work out what to do that way. You're just sort of walking around looking for stuff. But it's it's really well done the way it does that, that it, it throws you into that. The other thing it does really well too is the way some of the characters die. Yeah, you have some deaths that are kind of scripted, dunamont sort of deaths where somebody dies in a way that makes a certain kind of narrative sense. But then you have other characters who are just walking along and suddenly get their head blown off. Right? Yeah. That's the one um, in so, um, what Ro- Rhodes, like they're yeah um, Sean uh, Sean O'Brien yeah the, Sean O'Brien. yeah Sean O'Brien the Irish yeah. character who just suddenly gets shot dead in the middle right. of the night and you're not expecting it at all. I remember my wife was in the room when that happened actually and we both just had this like involuntary jump reaction. <laughs> it was like ah, <laughs> you know, she wasn't even playing the game. She was like oh, God, what happened then? But it's interesting that it's you know 
there's this quote from de Beauvoir that I really like, which is at the end of her book, which is a whole book describing her mother's death. At the very end of that book, there's this paragraph where she says, everyone's death is an accident for them, right? That is that for everyone, their death is this totally contingent, random thing that just appears out of nowhere. Now, even if there's already a lead up to it or whatever else, what she means is there's a sense in which death is this unwelcome alien visitor that just disrupts our lives. And sometimes in Red Dead Redemption, that's how death appears. It just emerges out of nowhere in these sudden shocking kind of ways. Well, let's talk about Arthur Morgan. He gets a tuberculosis diagnosis in the game. And what's interesting the way they did the the mechanics on this or the story it was it was really good because I remember when you start you're playing it and then at a certain point in the game you start noticing Arthur coughing just like a little bit not much and I remember when, I, when that first happened I thought oh I should get some medicine because maybe it'll make me feel better I didn't I had no clue that he had tuberculosis but then it gets progressively worse and then there's the point where he gets the TB diagnosis like you find you actually oh man this guy's got he's gonna die how does that TB diagnosis change Arthur Morgan? And then how can his experience, knowing he's going to die, teach us about, you know, Kierkegaard's idea of the certain uncertainty of death? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it really puts this amazing note of finitude in the game, which is really quite sort of powerful. And I mean, firstly, it's it's an amazingly brave choice because TB is such a common way to die in that era. I think there's something like, you know, a fifth or whatever of all humans who have ever lived have probably died of TB. Kierkegaard actually died of, t- of oh. a form of, of tuberculosis. He died not the lung version like Arthur has, but he died of what's called Pott's disease, which is like a basically tuberculosis that gets into the spinal column. And, you know, so it's, it's a very, very common sort of thing. So it, it's also kind of interesting in that it suddenly introduces into the narrative this really profound awareness of finitude and that's already there in the game right because we know that this world is running out we know that the way of life these people live is running out but suddenly you as the main character your time is also running out and you're not going to outlive the characters around you or not all of them which is really kind of intriguing and it does create this real sort of focus almost that there's you know your time is actually coming to an end You've got to do these things, but you're going to get progressively weaker as you go along, less capable of doing it. And and that's kind of, you know, really interesting. And, yeah, you mentioned Kierkegaard on, on what he calls certain uncertainty. That is, he says that the thing about death is that every single one of us is going to die, but exactly when it can happen is completely open-ended, right? You could die in the next five minutes. You could die, you know, 50 years from now. It's totally open-ended and, you know, therefore you can't, you can't simply buy into the sort of, you know, live every moment as if it's your last thing. What you have to do is the even more complicated thing of living every moment as if it's both your last and the first in a long life to come. So making every second count, but making every second count in a way where it could go either way. Now, in the case of Arthur, though, he's, he's got this sort of end point that's looming. Of course, he could die any time between now and then, and that's just the nature of Arthur's existence. But there is something to be said for what, Kierkegaard says about death being the the schoolmaster of earnestness, that death isn't about wondering about what the afterlife is going to be like, but is about concentrating you on how you live here and now in the mortal moments given to you. And I think that's an interesting thing in a game that, as I say, has like, you know, 60-something hours of scripted gameplay. You do, I think, end up really counting your moments once that TB diagnosis has happened, right? That you know this is actually going to come to an end and it's going to come to an end before too much longer, which is, yeah, really, really poignant and really powerful. And and then there's that moment with the nun you mentioned where he, he says to the nun, it's, the, it's, again, a pivotal moment for the character. I don't think he says this anywhere else. He says, I'm scared. And that's kind of this you know, really amazingly honest, raw confrontation with death that he's, he's sort of almost been putting off, off up to that point. Yeah. What do you think he's afraid of? Is he, is he afraid of dying itself and not existing? Is he afraid of what's ha- going to happen to the people that he, he cares about? Like, what do you, what is it about death that made Arthur Morgan afraid of it? Yeah. There's at least three different ways in which we fear death. So there's, as you say, this is the death, the, the fear of what will happen to my survivors who will carry out my projects, that sort of thing. I've elsewhere referred to it as a who will feed my goldfish fear of death. Then there's this fear of non-existence as such. So the fear of just not there being nothing it's like to be me anymore. 
Kathy Berendt, who's a Canadian philosopher, has done some really good work on that. And then there's also, I, I guess, the fear of what comes after death, which is real enough for many people. But then we know from Arthur, he doesn't think there's anything there. And he said, you know, but although there's that, no, he does actually say, what is it? He says, um, you know, that I'm assuming hell will be extremely unpleasant. And if I'll, it's not, I'll feel like I've been sold a bill of goods. <laughs> so it's, yeah, there's this interesting sort of attitude to the possibility of damnation where I don't, I don't it, it, none of the characters really seem to believe it, but it's kind of there in the background. So, okay, death can make, is like the school of earnestness. And it seems like Arthur, he becomes earnest after he gets his TB diagnosis. Like, and I think he, I think this is like the, I think this is the redemption part. This is like where Red Dead Redemption becomes Red Dead Redemption is he's, he realizes the, the Tahiti thing, they're never going back to the way things were. And he, I guess there's a moment he just decides, I gotta, I gotta make the best of what I got right now. Yeah. And, and again, that scene with the nun, I think is so kind of pivotal there because she basically says to him, you know, you have to take a risk and take a risk on love because he's, she says, you know, you're, every time I see you, you're happiest when you're doing what are essentially loving sort of things. And that moment where she says, you know, take a risk that love is possible. That interestingly actually kind of reminds me of another Danish philosopher, a guy called Kay Lustrup, a 20th century Danish philosopher who talks about things like trust and mercy and sincerity as what he calls sovereign expressions of life right? They're not things that we do necessarily. They're things that life almost imposes on us and we can either allow them to operate, allow trust to work in the world and open things up, allow sincerity to work in the world, or we can kind of get in their way and spoil them. And, and that in a way is kind of almost what she's saying to Arthur is just, just you know, give the goodness that you are aware of in the world, give that a chance, give love a chance to sort of, you know, express itself in the world and do some good things, which involves him taking a risk. It involves him taking, again, to use some Kierkegaardian language, a leap. And, and that leap was, he, he turned against Dutch and uh, he was going to help out John Marston, who picks up Red Dead Redemption 1. And that story, I think it's called, I, I call it like Arthur's Last Ride, mm. where he gets the key from Abigail for the tr like the, the money that Dutch has been hoarding. And he says, I got to go. There's one more thing I got to do. And it just, I, it destroys me every time I watch it. Um, you know, he gets on his horse, put on the hat. Like it's just done cinematically. It's done fantastic. And there's this song. It's like very soulful. It's like that's the way it is. And he's just riding on his horse and you, he starts hearing voices from, you know, his past, like the story that you've just played through of him, people just saying, you're a good, you're a good man, or you got to try to do the good thing. And you could tell like this, like that, like it just, that's the part that, that destroys me. Like that's the, when I, that's when I start yeah. crying like a baby. It's like this guy, he's, he's trying to redeem himself at this point. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really overwhelming. And it's, yeah, again, this idea that, that there's all this stuff that makes up a life and at death, and we know he's riding to death. We know that whatever happens next, he's not going to survive it. That's just clear from the narrative, you know, trajectory of the thing. As he's writing there, you do get that sense, which I think is really kind of pervasive, of death as being the thing that fixes whatever you were, right? That when you die, that's the end of, of possibility, that whatever you were, that's fixed at that moment. And that's all the stuff that he's carrying with him to his death is these things he's done. And look at that. He is actually a good guy. He has actually done good things. There is a redemptive, as you say, possibility there. And then, you know, it gets even more redemptive at the I mean, it's just, it's sadder at the end. If you do the good ending, right, there's a scene where Arthur has this final battle with Micah and then Dutch shows up and Arthur's just, he's got tuberculosis. You can tell he's the guy's about to die of tuberculosis. And there's this scene where Arthur's on the ground. He's looking up at a uh, Dutch and he says, I gave you everything, gave you everything I had. And this is this line where he just says, I tried, mm. I tried. That's all I can say. I tried. And I, for some reason, that's another thing. I just like, I, it broke me when he just get this, this beaten down guy just saying, I just tried. Uh, I don't know what it is about. The, is there any existential, like, is, is there a reason, is it, yeah. do existential philosophers have something there that can explain like why that hits you so hard? Uh, I think because that's all anyone can do, <laughs> right? You know, there's a sense in which, there's some sense in which every life's a failure, right? Every life, you know, leaves something undone or leaves something unfinished, but all you can do is say that you, you know, did your best, so to speak. And and 
yeah, that is, I think, a, a, a sort of a powerful moment. But also, as I say, the fact that it's a, a narrativizing of the life at death. And so it's a summing up of everything that there is and the sense of, well, that's it. There's nothing more. Just whatever happens now, you are whatever you were and you don't get a do-over. You don't get to, you know, go back and replay some things. Um, and yes, okay, you can actually just restart the game if you want, but it's an awfully <laughs> long way to go. Um, I, I had a student a few years ago actually who was doing a, um, a thesis on permadeath in games, right, the way in which in some games the game mechanics are such that if you die, that's it, you can't play the game anymore, right? It's not very popular for obvious reasons, but it, it, it's an option. And it does neatly sort of symbolise the fact that death is actually a one-and-done thing, that, you know, once once it's over, it's over. And I think that is one of the things that makes that scene so powerful. Uh, so you've written a lot about the themes of nostalgia and loss in Red Dead Redemption 2. We've kind of been talking about that, how it just the past is always is very pervasive in this game. There's pictures, the characters are always talking about the past. How else did you see this idea of nostalgia and loss appear in the game? Yeah, I, I think there's this interesting kind of as I say, double nostalgia in it almost. That, you know, on the one hand, these characters are living in a world that's already haunted by loss and already haunted by death and by the dead. The dead are really present in this game. And yet there's also a sense for us in which these characters, if they had lived, would now be dead. And so I'm kind of reminded here actually of um, Roland Barthes talks about this, this famous photo of Lewis Powell, who was one of the conspirators in the, the Lincoln assassination plot who was captured alive, and there's this very famous photo of him sitting in shackles on the deck of a, a Union ironclad ship and staring directly into the camera. It's a really powerful sort of photo. And Roland Barthes talks about this in his book Camera Lucida, and he says what's powerful about this is, at least in part, the fact that we have a sense he is, go- he is going to die and he has already died, right? We know this is a man who's waiting to die, but also we know that he's, for us, long dead. And that kind of layering, if you like, you know, as I say, makes gives a certain kind of poignance to these these moments. But there's also just, as I say, the fact that these characters are all longing for a past that's already irrecoverable to them, that's already gone. It's, I've, I've said at one point that it's kind of like the old elegiac poems that you get in, say, the old English, like, you know, the Beowulf-type old English poetry corpus you know there's there's a poem called the wanderer which you know has this whole passage where it's like where is the horse and where is the rider which tolkien then picks up and uses right remember that line gets used in right. the two towers you know there's this this sense of looking at the world and going oh man well where where did everyone go <laughs> what's going on you know and it, it's actually quite nice when you see that in the old english poems things like there's a, a a poem called or known to us as the ruin where the poet is clearly standing in what we would now recognize as the old roman baths in bath in england and saying look at all these stones look at all these pools what happened to the people who made it they've all gone a thousand years have passed and they're all disappeared and of course for us that poet is also disappeared that poet's world is also gone and that's the sort of thing that that sort of as i say double poignancy that i think is is so well done in, in Red Dead Redemption that you've got characters who are already lost pining for something else which is already lost. And there's a few characters who have some, maybe a bit of awareness about this pining. Like John Marston had this line where he said something like, you know, we've been talking about the, the good old days and maybe they, they weren't as good as we remembered. And like we, mm-hmm. weren't, we weren't the people that we, we said we were either. And I thought that was really a, a, a very, um, like some great self-awareness. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I really like about Kierkegaard is that he's so attuned to the human capacity for self-deception, right? He's so attuned to the way we tell flattering stories about ourselves, about, you know, and, and, and part of that's telling stories about the past, that the past, because we narrativize the past, you have to, to make sense of it, right? To make sense of anything, you have to narrativize it. But to tell a narrative, you have to cut detail out. You have to trim things in a way that serves the narrative. If you don't, then you just get a massive, unintelligible detail. And so there's always a sense of falsification involved in the way we tell the past because we have to tell it as a story rather than simply living it as it's happening. What's that famous quote there from Kierkegaard? Everyone likes the Instagram quote. It's like, we make, you only live backwards or what was that? Yeah. How does it go? Uh, yeah, the, the full quote is something like, philosophy is perfectly correct when it says that life can only be understood backwards, but then it misses out the next 
the corollary that life has to be lived forwards. Right. And that then gets distilled into life can only be understood backwards, but it has to be lived forwards. So it's, it's a repost to Hegel. Yeah. But it's a nice pithy little, particularly in the, the sort of distilled version, it's a nice pithy little quote. I actually saw it once on when we lived in Denmark. I saw it on the um, printed on like the debit cards of a Danish bank. So it's uh, which <laughs> seems like an interesting attitude to money, guys, but okay. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I think Arthur finally realized that, right? In that last ride, he's just like, I got to, I'm moving to this thing. This is it. That's the, that's all I can do. Yeah, that's it. You know, you, all you can do is just whatever's in front of you. I mean, yeah, you can't. <laughs> you, you, yeah, you, you can't go backwards. So, as a philosopher, I'm curious, what do you make of playing video games in general, and uh, a game like Red Dead Redemption Two in particular? I mean, Red Dead Redemption Two is very particular, which is an interesting thing. Like, there's there's so much about it that I think is is kind of unique. But you know, it's. It's really interesting that we spend so much of of our lives on screens and so much of our lives mediated through screens and they become transparent to us. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, we, as I say, getting through the the pandemic, we had to become more transparent to each other through screens because it was the only way you could have contact with people. So we got used to video calling. We got used to mediated ways of communication, which were already there, but suddenly they were much more kind of present in our lives because a lot of the time it was the only way you could communicate with people. With games, it's really kind of fascinating because you get this breakdown between passively watching fiction, like say watching a movie or, or whatever, and actively engaging with people online the way that, well, the way you and I are right now. And there's something, it it creates this interesting kind of in-between world. Kendall Walton actually talks about this as, he says, you know, that playing is basically as if, right? It's basically saying, well, we're going to do these things as if we're really doing this. And that's a, a, it's make-believe, right? And make-believe is actually a really powerful kind of way of engaging things because it's you, but it's also you doing things that you somehow never did. And that's kind of, Philosophically, I find that really kind of intriguing, the sort of fact that it's it's you but not you, that you are doing these things and yet you're not doing these things. So, yeah, you mentioned like Grand Theft Auto, right? You're doing things you would never do and yet, in a sense, you're kind of doing them. So I, I find the ontology of that just really, you know, tantalizingly ambiguous. It is weird. You know, Plato talked a lot about, he was really concerned about art and how you got to be careful with art because we are mimetic animals, right? We like to mimic things. And he said, well, if you know, if your art you're doing is really crappy, it's going to turn you to a crappy person. And video games, I feel like it just takes to the next level because like you're, you're doing it, but not doing it. And so I'm always, when I'm playing, I'm like, what is this doing in my soul? Like what would Plato say about this? Red Dead Redemption, like I felt like there's parts I'm like, ah, that, that didn't feel good. But there's most of it, I just felt good. Grand Theft Auto, I felt awful. So I had to stop playing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's the interesting thing, though. You're still doing pretty awful things sometimes in Red Dead Redemption, but it creates that distance, right? And, I mean, something like Grand Theft Auto maybe doesn't create that distance in the same sort of way. So, yeah, you torture somebody, but then you walk away and do a big soliloquy about, oh, torture's bad and it never works. That doesn't get you out of the fact that you just did this thing for however long. You know, it's whereas with something like Red Dead Redemption, you are, I think, and this is, again, a Kierkegaardian thought, I guess, but you're thrown back upon yourself as the agent as the person doing this stuff, you, you, you're forced to sort of think, where do I stand in relation to this? What would I do? How would I live? And what kind of choices would I make? And that kind of reflective dimension, I think, is, is really powerful and can be, at its best, really transformative. Well, Patrick, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? I spend way too much time on Twitter. Uh, you can also find me at patrickstokes.com. And if you want to read any of my stuff, it often turns up in uh, New Philosopher or sometimes produce radio documentaries for ABC Radio National here in Australia, which you can listen to as podcasts. Fantastic. Well, Patrick Stokes, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Brad. My guest today is Patrick Stokes. He's a professor of philosophy and the author of his recent book, Digital Souls, A Philosophy of Online Death. It's available on amazon.com. You can find more information about Patrick's work at his website, patrickstokes.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash rdr2, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a view on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you on listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Thank you.